go before the Lord God Almighty in prayer as a church. The heavens declare your glory, God, and the skies proclaim the work of your hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where your voice is not heard. Your law is perfect, reviving the soul. Your law is trustworthy, making wise the simple. Your law is right, giving joy to our hearts. Your law is radiant, giving light to our eyes. Our fear of you, Lord, is pure, enduring forever. Your laws are sure and altogether righteous. They are more precious than gold and sweeter than honey. By them we are warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Father, you know our hearts, you know our brokenness, and you know exactly what we need. So we take these moments in the quiet of our hearts to humble ourselves before you. To enjoy your presence. To confess, repent, mourn, and then accept your forgiveness for the sin in our lives. To ask your help for the challenges that we face. To pursue an even greater dependence on you day by day. To thank you for your grace your mercy, and your love. To surrender this Sabbath day to you. To seek and obey the guidance of the Holy Spirit throughout its hours. Father, would you use these words that you have given Cami to speak truth into our lives this morning. And may the words of our prayers and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. For Jesus' sake, amen. Amen. Good morning, church. Today we are continuing our sermon series through the Sermon on the Mount. 
But before we go any further, I want to be sure to get the football back. So April, Papa George, and her son Eli had it this week. And so, you know, again, April's going to come up here. Uh, whether you've been here for four weeks or four years or four decades, uh, we are always about, we always need to remember the fundamentals. Amen? All right, let's do this. Thank you, guys. You want to come up with your mom, Eli? We did it! Yes! <laughs> Thank you very, very much, y'all. And thank you, Christy, um, wherever you are, there you are, for reading our scripture passage for this morning. I cannot say this strongly enough. Today's verses, these four verses, are critical, absolutely critical, if we are to rightly understand not just the rest of Jesus' sermon. They are they're like the linchpin of Jesus' entire life and comprehensive ministry from the moment he was born to the moment he ascended back to the Father in heaven. So as they say in real estate, location, location, location. And so it can be said in teaching and preaching the word of God, context, context, context. Always. You are going to get sick of hearing that from us, but we don't mind. So far in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus has been focusing on the character or the nature of those who are citizens of the kingdom of God. We see that most explicitly in the Beatitudes. Last week, we saw how because of the internal nature of those who, who are his disciples, Jesus declares that externally we are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. It's who we are. We have been chosen by God. We have been set apart by him to be in this world, but entirely different from it. Jesus made abundantly clear that our purpose and function in this world are vitally important. We are called to influence those around us, not just by the message we proclaim, but by the very way we live our lives. From the inside out, right here, right now, where each and every one of us has been planted day by ordinary day. All for the glory of God. That's our immediate context for the passage today. But I want to take just a few minutes to help us remember and settle into the context for those who were listening to Jesus that very day. And if you'd like to review that historical context in more detail, you can go to our website where there's a link to our past sermons. August 15th is when um, we kicked off our sermon series with a review of biblical history, starting with creation. Uh, for the sake of time, today we're going to fast forward to, jo to John the Baptist, he came on the scene probably just a few months before Jesus delivered this very sermon. Um, he, his, his proclamation that the kingdom of God was near broke 400 years of prophetic silence. That is a long time of not hearing from God. 400 years of waiting and wondering looking for the promised Messiah, who the people of God expected them to deliver them from their oppression, to conquer their enemies, and to restore them as a great nation. 
Not only that, but we have to understand that as the people of God, and especially those who were their religious leaders, their entire identity was wrapped up in the law. That is what set them apart from every other nation on earth. It was to them that God gave the law. It was to them that God sent the prophets. It was to them that God revealed himself. And the thing is, they were pretty proud of that. I mean, you know, they were kind of a big deal. They were pretty confident they had it all figured out. The point is, you can be sure that when John's announcement that the kingdom of God was at hand, it came with all kinds of anticipation and excitement and expectation until people really started listening to what he was actually saying about it. John the Baptist's ministry and his message sparked immediate tension between the religious leaders of the day who quite literally prided themselves in their authority and learnedness and adherence to the law versus what John said the kingdom and its king was all about. And there was a huge difference. So by the time Jesus delivered this message, the deeply entrenched religious leaders especially, they were already on edge very suspicious of Jesus. From their perspective, Jesus was blatantly unorthodox in his understanding of and commitment to the Old Testament. But as we see in the verses today, and what we'll see as we continue on in the Sermon on the Mount, is that Jesus is going to give an authoritative, sovereign interpretation of the entire Old Testament that completely elevates himself and his understanding of it over all the chief priests and scribes and teachers of the law as they're often referred to in the New Testament. These four verses that we're going to be looking at this morning provide the key to not only understanding and interpreting and implying the entire Sermon on the Mount specifically, but honestly to understanding the very essence of this upside-down kingdom that Jesus' coming inaugurated. So with that in mind, I want us to listen to our passage for this morning one more time. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of God. We pray for a moment. Lord Jesus, may you and you alone be exalted today. And everything that we say, and everything that we sing, and all that we think, and in how we respond, 
to the eternal truth that we find in your word and in the living hope that we find in Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. So he said, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So anytime you see referenced in the New Testament the law or the Torah, it's referring to the first five books of the Old Testament. Joshua, oh, Joshua, good grief. That gives you a lot of confidence in what's happening up here today. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So they're also called the Book of Moses or the Pentateuch for the first five. The prophets are just that. They're all the prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah, Amos, Habakkuk, Joel, and so forth. So when you see the expression, the law and the prophets, it's simply a way of referring to the entire Old Testament. So Jesus could have said, do not think I've come to abolish the Old Testament. I've not come to abolish it, but to fulfill it. To the point I made just a minute ago, it's clear from the get-go that there were people who believed that Jesus was actually against everything that God had already said and done as revealed in the Old Testament. And so right off the bat, Jesus was correcting that idea and making it crystal clear. He didn't come to undo or do away with any of God's revealed requirements and purposes and plans in the Old Testament. Rather, Jesus came to give full obedience to them. That's what Jesus meant when he said that he came to fulfill the law and the prophets. I couldn't come up with a better way to say it than this commentator who wrote, everything that the Old Testament intended to communicate about God's will and hopes and future for humanity finds its fullest meaning and expression in Jesus. Jesus has come to actualize the scripture and to take his disciples to a deeper understanding of its intended meaning. That is what the Sermon on the Mount and the rest of his earthly ministry is all about. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So with that expression, for truly I say to you, it's like Jesus is underlining, italicizing, bolding, putting in all caps everything that he's saying, right? He's really, really, really emphasizing his point that all the authority that he possesses, and it says later, the very last chapter of Matthew, of Matthew, chapter 28, he in fact possesses all authority in heaven and on earth. In this case, Jesus is explicitly referring to the Old Testament, and he says that, that everything he does, everything in God's word, it, it's absolute, it's eternal, until heaven and earth pass away. It's permanent. Never can nor will it be changed even to the slightest extent. Martin Lloyd-Jones was the minister of Westminster Chapel in London from 1939 to 1968. And he spent over half a year preaching straight through the Sermon on the Mount, just like we've set out to do. 
And those sermons have been such a rich and helpful resource for me. And I want to quote directly from him here. He said, the law that God has laid down, and which you can read in the Old Testament, and everything that has been said by the prophets is going to be fulfilled down to the minutest detail. And it will hold and stand until this absolute fulfillment has been entirely carried out. And it's all going to be done by and in and through Jesus Christ. Full stop. You know, I've actually heard and talked to people who really believe that we don't need the Old Testament anymore. Now that Jesus has come and done all that he's done, we just can kind of relegate all that stuff as as outdated and unnecessary. We don't, I mean, you don't really even need to read it anymore. But let let me say this as clearly as I possibly can. If we are to be believers in and followers of Jesus Christ, then like him, we must regard every single word of the Old Testament as authoritative, binding, and eternal. Every single one pointing to and perfectly fulfilled in Jesus. I couldn't help but think of that moment near the end of, it's at the, yeah, very near the end of Jesus' life, um, his earthly ministry, that we read about in the book of Luke. Um, And it's just kind of that proverbial bow that kind of wraps up and demonstrates this point perfectly. So it was after the crucifixion and the resurrection, and there were two men who were walking home. They were going from Jerusalem to Emmaus, and they were talking as they were walking and about everything that had happened, and and the Bible says that they were kind of downcast because they just couldn't make sense of it all. And it says that as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked with them. And when he asked them what they were talking about, they were incredulous. Like, where have you been? I mean, how could you not know what just happened in Jerusalem? Everybody knows. So they started explaining it, right? And this is what Jesus said to them. He said, how foolish you are. And how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And listen here. This is what he says. He said, beginning with Moses, the law, and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. It all points to Jesus. Every last bit of it. Again, to quote Lloyd-Jones, he said, The moment you begin to question the authority of the Old Testament, you are of necessity questioning the authority of the Son of God himself. And you will find yourself in endless trouble and difficulty. Jesus continues, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So what's so important to keep in mind when we come to this passage and to these verses specifically is that we come with the rest of the story filled in. And what I mean by that is that 
we know what happens to Jesus just a few years later. We know he ended up being crucified, and, and we know that he resurrected, and then he ascended into heaven. We remember what happened at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, and we've read Paul's letters to all those churches in the New Testament. And so when we read these words from Jesus here, we read all of that stuff into them. Do you understand what I'm saying? So to a degree, that's absolutely okay and appropriate because all of Scripture is to be taken into account and, and, and within context of all the rest. But nonetheless, we still need to be very careful that we don't get ahead of Jesus or the disciples here, if that makes sense. You know, the disciples, they didn't know then what we know now. And that makes a big difference and how they received Jesus' teaching that day. The 12, especially, were a fairly motley crew, right, of ordinary G uh, Jewish guys. And again, I emphasize Jewish because I want us to remember that they, like us, were deeply influenced by the religious leaders of their day, the Pharisees, chief priests, and teachers of the law. They looked up to them. They listened to them. To a large degree, they very much trusted them to help them understand God's law and, and who and how they were supposed to be as God's people. And really, it's probably like, much like the way we think of, um, of the leaders of the larger presbytery, right, of which we're a part, and maybe even bigger still, of the Reformed tradition um, that we're in. You know, they've all gone to seminary, they've got degrees, they've studied, they've read all the books, they know their stuff more than we do. And so therefore, you know, we're given to trust them when they teach us from God's word or, or when they write the conf confessions or basic tenets of our faith. Up to this point in his ministry, while Jesus has certainly ruffled the feathers of the religious leaders, and they weren't particularly happy with what they were hearing or seeing from him, he hadn't yet really started taking them to task for what they were getting profoundly wrong. That's coming in just a few verses and certainly continues throughout his ministry. But listen, from the disciples' perspective at this point, the Pharisees were really good guys, right? They were the ones to be emulated. They were the ones who were getting it right. They were the ones everyone listened to and thought they should be like. So the Pharisees had identified over 600 specific Old Testament laws, which they gave themselves to explaining and obeying fully, or so they thought. Not only that, they actually came up with a whole bunch of additional man-made rules which were eventually elevated to the status of law uh, so that they would help people come, not even come close to breaking God's actual law, right? Like if this is law, they made another little man-made rule so that we don't even get close to getting to breaking that over there. I mean, I'm telling you, they, had, they were hardcore. You can do this, but not that, that, but not this. I mean, it was a full-time job keeping track of it all. And so when Jesus said this to his disciples, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven, most of those listening 
we're likely a bit discouraged, thinking, I know, I know, I've got to be more like the Pharisees. But as we're going to see, that is not what Jesus was saying. Not even close. So do you know how we have a tendency to treat some laws as more important to obey than others? Like, I mean, I may or may not be talking about me obeying the speed limit or always using my turn signals. You know, those less important laws. But as I, you know, I experienced not a little bit of conviction as I was preparing this message. Um, the fact of the matter is, they're not less important. We are required to obey them. All of them. Now, I'm not arguing that when we break some laws, there may be lesser or greater consequences than when we break other laws. That's absolutely true. But what I am saying is that the law is the law, no matter what it is. And the same is true for the law of God, even more so. Jesus just got done saying that every little last iota and dot of the Old Testament mattered. And later in the New Testament, Jesus' half-brother James wrote that whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. Even the less important ones. It all matters. Once again, Jesus is just driving home the binding authority of all of Scripture. Since Jesus didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them, it simply makes sense that we aren't to abolish or break any of the commandments either. Not one little bit, but instead must practice and teach all of them. Remember, the disciples were likely thinking that this meant they had to be more like the Pharisees. But Jesus here is actually kind of setting them up or preparing them for what is to come. And what is to come is a warning, really, that they were to be careful to conduct themselves with regard to the law as he explains and fulfills it, not the Pharisees. We've already established that the entire Old Testament is the perfect expression of God's will for all of humanity. But the Sermon on the Mount makes it clear that it is to be obeyed and taught from the perspective of how Jesus interpreted it. The Word of God, Old Testament and New, is not to be trifled with in any way, shape, or form. Jesus is the one we look to, not only for its fullest meaning and intent, but also is the one who lived it perfectly on our behalf. For I tell you that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This was the most shocking statement of all. 
Think of what those average, everyday disciples like you and me had to have been thinking or feeling in that moment. Their heads had to have been spinning. Their hearts had to have been quaking. It's not possible. There's no way. We could never do that. We'll never, ever be good enough. I don't know as I can begin to imagine the ebb and the flow of of emotion and weight for those listening that day. For all the things that had to be racing through their hearts and minds. And Jesus is just getting started. But here's the thing. As we continue on in the sermon, the disciples are going to see, we're going to see, that Jesus isn't talking about quantitative righteousness here. It's not about literally doing more measurable good things than the Pharisees. It's not even about being more preoccupied than the Pharisees with the minutia of the law. You never see that in Jesus' life or teaching. What Jesus is going to make clear in the coming verses, and so you're going to have to come back next week and the weeks to follow as we, as we unpack them, is that there is a new and deeper kind of righteousness that flows from within those who are members of the kingdom of God. Though they matter, it is about far more than our external actions. We've been saying that for weeks now. It flows from within, from our hearts. And Jesus is the one who explains and then demonstrates the authoritative and definitive meaning of this righteousness as expressed through the law with all that he teaches and the very life that he lives. Jesus here is calling his disciples to a way of righteousness altogether different than what they have ever learned from or seen in the Pharisees. It's also very important to note here that Jesus is not talking about some sort of cause and effect relationship based on personal effort. We will never, ever be or do enough. We will never say enough or give enough or know enough. We will never be good enough on our own to enter into the kingdom of God. And let me say that again loud and clear because if we don't get this, we are not going to understand the righteousness that Jesus is talking about. We will never be good enough on our own to enter into the kingdom of God. As David showed us when we were looking at the Beatitudes, it is Jesus' blood and Jesus' blood alone that secures our salvation. We have got to remember that in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is teaching his disciples, those who were already recipients of the kingdom. Entrance into the kingdom of God is a gift sealed with his blood, but with that gift comes our necessary response. To truly be members of the kingdom of God necessarily means 
that our lives will reflect that. It means that we will follow Jesus and obey his teaching. In other words, the kingdom of God and righteousness go hand in hand. They cannot be separated. So it follows that if the kind of righteousness that Jesus is talking about here is absent, well then there can be no entrance into his kingdom. Oh, that we would feel the weight of what those first disciples likely felt that day. The sinking, desperate realization that as far as it depended on them, it was absolutely hopeless. And yet here was one who seemed to be telling them that it was somehow possible. Do you see? Can you understand what this would have created in them? Can you see how maybe, maybe for the first time ever at this point, they understood poverty of spirit? How deeply pervasive their sin was and how utterly incapable they were to do anything about it. Can you see how that likely would have led, led them to truly and deeply mourn their reality? To recognize their utter incapability and weakness and then to truly hunger and thirst for this righteousness of which Jesus spoke, I, I can almost imagine them wanting to jump up and say, Jesus, please, please show us, help us, give us this righteousness. We can't do it on our own. Jesus knew that that was true for them. Jesus knows that that's true for us. And that is precisely why he came. That is precisely why he fulfilled perfectly all the law and the prophets. That is precisely why he died on the cross and rose again. That is precisely why he left and went back to the Father in heaven in order that the Holy Spirit might be poured out on all those who believe in him. That through faith, we might give him our sin in exchange for his perfect righteousness, his perfect fulfilling of the law that's now credited to us. By faith. Not because of the work we have done. Not because we're good enough. But because he is. We are made righteous. In and through the righteousness of Christ alone. Listen, God's word tells us. That even our attempts at good works are like filthy rags before a holy God. Jesus accomplished on our behalf all that needed to be done 
with regard to the law. Every last bit. And the invitation of the kingdom is to receive that gift from him. The good news of the gospel is that when we do, our hearts of stone are turned into hearts of flesh. The Holy Spirit inhabits us and then empowers us to now live according to the law in ways we could never, ever do on our own. And it is all for the glory of God. Let's pray. Holy and righteous God, we acknowledge this morning that our sin separates us from you. That apart from you, we are living in darkness, hopeless to do anything about it on our own. Jesus, I pray through the power of your Holy Spirit that you would open blind eyes today, peel away more of the scales from our eyes, unstop our ears, pierce our hearts with the transforming power of your perfect and eternal word. Thank you, Jesus, for doing what we could never, ever have done on our own. And thank you for offering that gift of righteousness to us in exchange for our sin. When we receive the gift of faith, God, may we rejoice in you alone today. For you alone are worthy. In Jesus' name, amen. So as the band plays, I want to encourage us this morning in our response time to imagine what it must have been like that day. Put yourself there. To realize that as far as it depended on them, the disciples were hopeless ever to achieve the kind of righteousness that was required for entrance into the kingdom of God. But let's not stop there. Again, I want us to remember and to know to our depths that the exact same true, the exact same thing is true for us. There is no one righteous, not even one, no one who seeks God, no one who hungers for him on their own. There is not one single person in this room or online who deserves entrance into the kingdom of God based on their own merits. Dwell on that truth for a few moments.
So now, after considering the depravity and the hopelessness of your sin, confess it before God. Repent. For those of you who have already received God's gift of rescue and redemption in Christ, allow your hearts and your minds and your souls to soar in gratitude and praise for what Christ has done for you, what he has given to you. And for those of you, for some of you, perhaps this is the very moment that you know that God is extending that gift of faith to you. And so I urge you, receive it. Receive what only Christ can give to you, the forgiveness of your sins and his perfect righteousness credited to your account. He is worthy to be praised for he has done what no one else could ever have done or do in order that we may be made right with God and citizens 